Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. Today is Thursday, August 17th. We have a lot of interesting things to get to. We're going to start with the Dodgers, who have actually won 10 games in a row. They're 14-1 and in August. We're going to talk about how former Dodger Corey Seager is on an absolute tear for Texas. We're going to talk about the really interesting and kind of weird thing the Twins are doing. And also, hey, what's going on with Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? I don't know. It's weird. We're going to try to figure it out. Then we're going to finish off with a couple of guys you should know more about. Matt, have you noticed the Dodgers have won 10 in a row and they are 10 games up on the Giants? And I'm sure we've talked about this at some point. This was supposed to be the disappointing year. This was supposed to be the year that the Padres overtook them because like Justin Turner left and Cody Bellinger left and they didn't really do anything super interesting this past winter. And then the spring got off to a pretty lousy start because Gavin Lux got hurt right away. And at some point, the entire rotation has been hurt. And this was going to be the year that the decade long run of dominance has ended. They're on pace for 99 wins. <laughs> They're only four games behind Atlanta in the last column. Dave Roberts actually told USA Today, and I quote, This is my favorite team I've ever had. Definitely things we all thought we'd be saying about the Dodgers six months ago. I guess the lesson for next year, when obviously Shohei Otani will be hitting cleanup for them, never bet against the Dodgers. Never, ever, ever. This will never stop. I'm definitely surprised. You know, I think I was one of the people who picked the Padres to win the division, so I will I will own that. Me too. But as the season has gone on, and we've talked about this a little bit, like I have a whole new appreciation for Freddie Freeman and Mookie Betts. It's hard to quantify having two like Hall of Famers at their peak batting first and second. Like that just doesn't happen. And I think there's a couple of things at play here. One of which just speaks to how good and valuable those guys are, and the decision to bat them one and two, which is a thing that like wouldn't have really happened until recently, but I think is a very real thing that it's not worth like 10 wins, but it's probably worth a couple wins over the course of the season in a way that we don't quantify. Whereas like, what do you think 20 years ago, would they have batted third and fourth, second and third? Like, what do you think? Like, I think that that is, that's real. And I'm kind of curious, like where, where you, where you fall on this? Well, first of all, I disagree with you that it's hard to quantify. Uh, I did quantify it. I wrote, I wrote about it and, um, I'm introducing that as a way to answer the question you just asked, right? So I looked this up. They are right now tied with the uh, 1976 Cincinnati Reds, the big red machine who had Pete Rose and Joe Morgan hitting one, two, the Mookie and Freddie, not just them, the top two spots in the Dodger order, which are mostly them. Uh, they are tied for basically the best performance in major league history with those Reds teams. Uh, they're 50% above the top two spots of the league average. And when I wrote about that, I did get a lot of not pushback, but it's like, but yeah, but teams from the past, they didn't have their top two guys hitting top two. You know, the Yankees didn't hit Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig one and two. Their uniform numbers weren't one and two, right? Famously, they're three and four because that's how uniform numbers were handed out. And to some people, I think that invalidates like the fact that these two guys are performing this well. But I think it goes back to your point, which is like, it doesn't make it invalid. It just shows that teams are better than ever at actually doing this you know like Aaron Judge hit leadoff a lot last year Trout and Otani were hitting one two a lot over the last couple years it it just kind of come back to the fact of if you have amazing hitters let them hit a lot and don't have like the fast guy who can't get on base leading off and the good contact hitting middle infielder who can move the runner over hitting second like teams don't really do that anymore that's actually something I want to explore a little further in the future in terms of researching it but the Dodgers 
you know, they have a big gap between these two guys and everybody else. And so these two guys pay more than everybody else. Sometimes it is that simple. Because I think that like, I guess what I was getting at is like quantifying the impact of how it affects the other team's manager, because like it forces, it forces decision points. We talk all about like third time through the order penalty and how managers think differently about how they use relievers and are more willing, like it's forcing decision points from the opposing manager way earlier like now that you're getting decision points, like because of these guys, like fourth inning, right? Where it's like, oh my goodness, these guys are coming up for a third time. Do I need to already like take my guy out? I think that I think that that's that's real, and it's almost like, you know, as as, as an NBA fan, as you think about like, why in the world would you ever decide like, you know what, I'm going to take my two best players and give them the third and fourth most shots, right? <laughs> it's like, no, you want to give them the most shots. Like this is, I, I know it's not directly analogous, but like it's way simpler than we've ever really given it credit for. And I have to give a hat cap tip to our colleague, Tom Tango, who wrote about this in his book like 20 years ago. And like the whole best hitter bat second was like the big, one of the big takeaways from that book. And that has been a thing that's sort of like grown. It's picked up currency in baseball over the years. And now you see both, you now you see more and more. The other big takeaway was how the third spot was overrated and a spot that like you don't, you, you probably shouldn't put one of your best hitters in. And those two things together have really, I think, taken hold around the league. And now, I mean, obviously, the Dodgers have two of the top, like, 10 hitters in baseball, so it makes it easier to make this decision. Um, but And it also helps that they stay healthy and play every day, because I know what some of you are probably thinking is, like, well, what about Otani and Trout? Otani and Trout have only really had one season when they were both actually healthy and played, like, more than 140 games together. I think 2021 is the only year where they've been on the same team where they've both played more than 140 games. They even really had an opportunity to execute a strategy like this. No, for sure. And, uh, you know, to your point about the, the third time through the order coming back up again, and it's these two, you can't even use an opener strategy here because Betts bats righty, Freeman bats lefty and has very little platoon spit. Like there, there is no good option here. It really does kind of come down to what you said, though. Like it's nice to put guys in the right spots in the batting order. It's even nicer to have two of the three best players in the National League. <laughs> like that's that's a good and place I- for any manager to start. And I take it back. It wasn't even 2020. I don't think it's ever happened that they were both healthy. I was trying to look it up very quickly as we were talking. I don't think it's ever happened. So um, anyway, but it's also more than just Trout and Freeman. I mean, it's not uh, Betts and Freeman, to be clear. Like it's, it's a good organization top to bottom, and they fill in the gaps, and they know what they're doing. And there's a lot more to it than just that. Because I think for us, a lot of the reason I was down on them was like, okay, well, they're not going to have Walker Bueller. They're not going to have Gavin Lux. Who's going to play shortstop for them? Like, And... Even Julio Arias hasn't even had that great of a season, and now they're still. It's that's that's what's the, the remarkable part. Of, in some ways, is how they filled in the pitching gaps. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and guys are starting to get healthy, right? Kershaw missed a bunch of time. He's coming back. Bobby Miller has looked really, really good, uh, especially over the last couple times out. Trading away Noah Syndergaard is a little bit of addition by subtraction, especially you know you look at the guys they traded for uh, these under the radar guys. Ahmed Rosario has been pretty good against lefties. Enrique Hernandez has been pretty good against lefties. And what's kind of cool is, you know, we've talked so much about the Braves, like how far ahead of everybody are the Braves this year. There's only four game difference in the loss column, and they still have a four game series against each other. At the end of August or early September, there's a four game series in LA, and the Dodgers won two out of three the first time they met. So 
there's a decent chance that we go into that series, which starts, I think, two weeks from today, and the Dodgers are within shouting distance of the number one seed, which to me would be make the most incredible thing of this entire run. And by run, I mean like the last decade's worth of Dodger dominance, because this was the this was the write-off year. This is the step-back year. Um, credit, as you said, to the pitching staff. Um, I saw this from Fabian Ardaya. So we talked a little bit in July. They had like the worst pitching month in the entire history of the franchise, <laughs> going back to the Brooklyn days. 618 ERA from the starters last month 217 so far this month right now that's partially because kershaw's back and miller has been great lance lynn has been a pretty nice addition uh but they they're gonna have some interesting pitching decisions to make when you get to october i think right because bueller's gonna be back probably not stretched out to go six or seven but he'll be back enough to give you something right blake trinan might be back out of the bullpen uh ryan pepio is coming back soon nelson is is kind of coming back they have so many pitchers now. Shelby Miller might be coming back. And Tony Gonsolin, who was like 16-1 and one last year, has been super inconsistent. As you said, Arias has been okay. I'm not entirely sure what a Dodger starting rotation for the postseason looks like other than it's going to be Kershaw 1 and probably just because of track record Arias 2. But at the end of the day, it's not going to matter, right? You're not using five starters. You might not need four starters if you can get Trinan or, uh, or, or Bueller to come in and say, oh, here's three innings when you need them. Like, They'll piece it together. That that's what they always do. I think the the Bueller question is an interesting one to me because like he's coming off surgery, and I'm confident if they put him in, he will be effective when he pitches. The question is like you're not gonna use him, you're obviously not going to use him on back to back days, and you're also not going to use him in a situation where you expect him to pitch every fifth day and give you you know five or six innings. So is it like do you pitch him every fifth or sixth day, fifth day, and hope that he can give you three innings? Is that a good use of a roster spot? But I. If there's any team I'm confident can figure this out and come to like a reasonable conclusion, it is the Dodgers. I mean, like, I'm not one who discounts the 2020 season, but I also know that like it's a weird one. And even the players, there was a piece recently in the LA Times where like the players were like, yeah, it was like kind of weird to win it that way. So like I do think that like, not that it legitimizes this era of Dodger baseball, because like they don't need like fans to necessarily legitimize them but i think there is like a there is a something a little bit of like a what if out there of just like it's not it doesn't mean it's lesser it's just not the same and i think that like having the like experience of winning with a crowd with a parade with all that stuff would take this era to a would would sort of like would i I mean i hate to say legitimize it but as some people i think it would and like i get you know that's just i think it's true You've opened the door to a 30-second tangent before we move on. People like to say it's not a real season and it's not a real title, which I think is garbage. The, yes, it was a 60-game season. Do we really think that the Dodgers weren't going to make the playoffs if it was 162? Have you not watched baseball for the last decade? And not only that, the postseason that year was harder than ever. There was no benefit to being the number one seed at all. They had to play, I believe, a seven-game LCS in seven days with no days off, no home fans. And so when the players say, yeah, I want to win a real one, I don't take that as... That was a fake one. It just, yeah, you're right. Like in front of a sterile, neutral environment, uh, without the home fans, or you know, even the fans yelling at you on the road, without a parade. It's not, it's not the same, but it definitely counts. I don't want to hear anybody say it doesn't count. It, 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 it definitely counts. But you know, even if you don't want to put any sort of asterisk next to it, we think of the Braves from the '90s to the mid 2000s who went the playoffs what 15 straight times and won one World Series, and like they're not looked at as the same as same way as a dynasty as like the, the late nineties Yankees, even though they had a more dominant like run, a longer dominant run. And I think the Dodgers are sort of in that in that territory. We you and I know how random postseason baseball is. 
but you know, as we also know, flags fly forever. And it the these as dominant as this run has been, and we've talked about this on this podcast going back like five years now of like there are these different five year stretches of like it's more dominant than the late nineties Yankees and on par with the fifties Yankees and all these things. It's still one World Series. So I do think I'm not a Dodgers fan, but I am a someone who appreciates baseball history. And I think that like in terms of the annals of baseball history and how we want things to be remembered, I would like to see the Dodgers win another World Series so that this kind of era can get its full its full due. Speaking of 2020 Dodgers who absolutely murdered the ball in Texas, we'll take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk about Corey Seager. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Each week, Matt and I like to go into our three better minimum, three interesting topics. And we've certainly talked about the Rangers a lot this year, but I'm not sure we've we've highlighted Corey Seager as much as he has deserved. And oh my God, is he on some kind of heater? He right now is hitting 348 with a 411 on base and an OPS well over 1,000. He is a 189. OPS plus. Now he did miss a bunch of time this year. Uh, he, uh, I believe, injured his thumb at some point, and also uh, he had a leg injury, and so that's going to make it a little bit difficult for him to rack up the counting stats um, that you're familiar with. But he is in the 99th percentile in hard hit rate, um, and then there's an interesting discussion that Matt and I briefly had, which was obviously Otani is winning the MVP, but is the door open to a player who missed this much time? to come in second in the MVP. And I think there's a solid argument for it because there's not a clear second place guy. Like if you look at the second place potential, you know, non-Otani runner-ups, it's like, well, you know, Simeon and Robert have an argument. You know, I think obviously Wander Franco is not going to be considered anymore. Bobby Witt Jr. has had a great year on a terrible team. It could be Corey Seager having only played, I don't know, what's he going to get to? 110 games? 115? I think the door is open there. Yeah, I think I think right now, if I had to guess, if the season ended today, Seager would probably end up finishing second in, in the AL MVP. And I will say, I think part of the reason I've overlooked his season, and I will I will say this, is because when you click on leaderboards, he doesn't yes. qualify. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> and that's the thing. But like, so, you know, he's hitting what you said, 348 right now, which, you know, until two weeks ago, we were like, oh, Otani could win, could win, could win the triple crown. Like, and the question was maybe a little bit of like, oh, Boba Shet, but he's hurt. So if he misses time and you zero out his play appearances, because there's this thing that they do with the batting crown, where basically, I'm going to try and explain this. It's hard to explain. <laughs> basically, if you fall, you need 502 plate appearances to qualify. It's 3.1 per team game is how it works. If you fall short, so let's say you had 498 plate appearances. Or in your four, your 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 four short. What they would do is they would basically give you an O for four, and so then they would see what your batting average is after that O for four, and that's where you would fall on the leaderboard. This has only happened once, where a one time Tony Gwynn, um, where someone fell short of five hundred two and still won the batting title. What year was it? Nineteen ninety six. Uh, he had a three fifty three, and you know, adding the O for four gave him like a fake three forty nine, which is enough to win. But it won't say three forty nine on his batting his baseball card. Like he still hit three fifty three. It's confusing and weird. I hope this doesn't happen again because I don't want to have to explain this ever. But it is a rule. And so, if Seager, assuming Seager stays reasonably healthy, he's going to end up right around five hundred and two plate appearances. So he might have to have a couple zeroed out. But right now, he's like forty points ahead of Otani, and it's hard to imagine that like even. 
if he gets within like, you know, five or 10 player frames of 502 at this point, that gap will be made up. So it is a little sad because I was like looking at that leaderboard, like, oh, cool, Tonic wins Triple Crown. Probably not going to happen for a variety of reasons, but, and that's a, Corey Seager is a big one. I mean, Simeon probably would have been the other choice, You, but if you look at their baseball cards, I mean, the Simeon's whole thing is that he plays every day, right? He's been playing every day for years. He's like the, the, as close as we have to an Iron Man in this day and age. Um, but if you look at their baseball card stats, they're going to be nothing com- compared, not nothing, but Seegers are going to look a lot more impressive. Yes. And if you look at this historically, so Seeger is not going to rack up any incredible wins above replacement totals, right? Because he missed too much time. He's a decent defender, but he's not an elite defender. So if you just look at this offense only, assuming he qualifies, uh, he's within shouting distance of the best play, uh, best offensive season by a Texas Ranger and the best offensive season by a shortstop. Like Those are two pretty incredible things to say. So if you just look at weighted runs created plus, uh, right now he's at 190. Did you realize this? I could have given you a billion guesses, and you would have never been able to guess this. Do you know who currently holds the record for best hitting season by a Texas Ranger in terms of weighted runs created plus? They moved from Washington. Who? Jeff Jeff Burrows? Burrows. No, not Jeff Burrows. The, the, The correct guess, which is wrong, is Alex Rodriguez right? Because he played there and had some monster seasons. Uh, Mike Napoli in 2011 had an absolutely incredible season. He slugged 631. He had a 179 weighted runs created plus. I know, Mike Napoli, not the guess I would have had. Uh, Seager right now for I will primary... say though, Jeff Burroughs did win the MVP in like 1974. That's why that was my guess. It yeah, was a real he... guess. It wasn't, it wasn't just being, I wasn't just being a glib jerk. Like It was a real guess. I know, and then he fell off the face of the earth. But he won the MVP with 25 uh, home runs you know, and then you know, kind of never played again. Anyway, uh, best seasons by a shortstop in terms of weighted runs created plus. Number two, Hanley Ramirez in 2013. Number one, Arky Vaughn in 1935, which uh, I don't think that's one I would have thought of. Arky Vaughn was an underrated Hall of Famer. Corey Seeker right now is fourth on the list. So there's like the potential and, and, for... And to, your, and to your point, and to your point, like looking at, again, he has not had as many plate appearances as Freeman or Otani or Acuna. He has a higher weight runs created plus than all of those guys. Like, you know, on a rate basis, he has been the best hitter in baseball this year. And I think that's that's like an important point to make as well. Yeah, and he was, he was at number one. Not no, not number one overall, but a first round draft pick by the Dodgers a bunch of years ago. Had a very good run with them, and he somehow upped his game. And I kind of joked about it earlier, but like during the 2020 postseason, where everybody thought, "Boy, this ballpark in Texas is a pitcher's park. It's hard to hit in." Except for Corey Seager, uh, I believe when he signed with the Rangers, he was the all time leader in home runs in Texas, despite not having played for Texas. And then he goes there, and he's, he's been fantastic. Like he is a huge part of this Rangers renaissance. Our second topic, the Minnesota Twins. This is a very fun fact that I found this morning. They have the most pitching strikeouts in baseball and the most batting strikeouts in baseball. If you want to see a ball in play, do not go see a Minnesota Twins game. And of all the franchises, this is the one that's funny for me. If you remember like the 21st century Twins, they were built around letting the ball be hit and making contact. They literally had pitchers named Kevin Slowey, right? That was the entire ethos of like the Terry Ryan twins. And they, they had success, obviously, at times. But uh, if you look it, from 2000 to 2016, which was the last year before they hired the current front office regime, they were essentially tied for last in pitching strikeout rate with the Rockies and the Royals. And they had the sixth lowest batting strikeout rate. That's what they did. Put the ball in play. Don't get strikeouts. Don't really hit for power. And now they're just, they are the most extreme team. And I don't know how historically relevant this is. I do know it's happened as recently as 2015, 
the Cubs, who had the most in both. And what that means to me, based on the sample size of just that team, the congratulations to the Twins are going to win the World Series next year. That's definitely that's definitely how that works. This some of this was predictable, right? Last year they had Luis Arise and they traded him. And they signed Joey Gallo and they signed Michael A. Taylor, right? You do not do those things without expecting your strikeout rate will go up. And and it has, but at least if we stick on the batting side for a minute, setting that aside, everybody's striking out more, right? Buxton is striking out more, Correa, Jeffers, Larnack. They've also called up, you know, Matt Wallner and Edward Julian, who have both been very good, but they strike out a lot. I feel like Twins fans uh, hate this because the lineup's been inconsistent and they strike out a lot. And the lineup has not been super fun to watch. The pitching has been very fun, but it's weird, right? Of all franchises to do this, literally the Twins might have been the 30th team at 29th because the Rockies exist. The Twins. Well, you mentioned Kevin Slowey, and we and I were talking about this yesterday. And I was like, isn't Kevin Slowey the guy who like had a crazy strikeout-to-walk ratio year? And you're like, no, it was Carlos Silva. And I went and looked this up just to give you a sense of like, this is one of those, like, wow, baseball has changed a lot in 18 years. In 2005, Carlos Silva threw 188 innings with 71 strikeouts and nine walks and led the league in strikeout-to-walk ratio by virtue of having <laughs> with only 71 strikeouts because he only walked nine guys and had a 3-4-4 ERA. It is, like, almost unfathomable that a pitcher like that existed in, like, recent memory but he did and the twins were just like full of guys like that here's a trivia question for you do you know what dallas keichel strikeout to walk ratio is this year is it zero because he has zero strikeouts infinity basically (laughs) yeah they lead the league in pitching strikeout rate dallas keichel has thrown 236 batters and has not struck out a single one which seems to me unsustainable what do i know he's going to get one more start this weekend and then it feels like maybe that's it um but the, the most incredible thing about this is if you remember what happened to the twins last summer in the middle of the season kind of out of nowhere their highly regarded pitching coach Wes johnson bailed and went to go take a job at lsu right and he's, he's taken another job after that and they had to scramble to like backfill the coaching staff and here they are with the best strikeout rate uh in all of baseball i think that's really cool it is cool. I mean, they're they're going to make the playoffs. It's a weird year because because they just haven't looked that impressive. But that division is so weak. Lopez has maintained Pablo Lopez, who has a career, a history of fading the second half, has maintained his performance well so far. So that's promising. Sonny Gray has been fantastic again. He's going to be a free agent this year. Fascinating to see what ends up with him because, like, he's having another good year. Um, but then you have guys like Joe Ryan, who's had to go on the IL after being like kind of disastrous for about a month. Billy Ober starting to hit around a little bit. So, like, there's definitely a little, like, a little bit of just like, okay, can the pitching last? But if if Lopez and Gray are healthy going into a postseason series, they will have like that's going to be better than a lot of the t- their one two is going to be as good as or better than a lot of the teams they would potentially face in the postseason. Yeah, and don't forget, uh, Kenta Maeda is back, too, and pitching reasonably well. Since you brought up Sonny Gray, you know that there's basically no one on Earth who cares less about pitcher wins than I do. Do you know that he went three solid months in the midst of a good season without a pitcher win? 15 starts all of May, all of June, all of July. (laughs) He did not get a win uh, because, you know, they didn't support him with runs, obviously. Neither here nor there, but I thought that was pretty funny. What they've also done um, is not rocket science sometimes, right? Sometimes it's to get rid of guys who aren't very good and import guys who are. Like, remember how much of their rotation last year was Chris Archer, Dylan Bundy, 
Devin Smeltzer. They made 66 starts last year. I think Smeltzer's pitched a little bit, but otherwise, th- those three guys are essentially out of baseball. Where are you now? Like, we are almost, what, we're four months into the season. Luis Arise has stopped hitting 400 or really anywhere close to it. Lopez has continued to have a good season. If you look at the wins above replacement, uh, Fangraphs, similar, right? Lopez, 3 6. Arise 3-2. Obviously, if Arise were still there, he would have done a lot to bring down the strikeout rate, but Lopez has been a good part of the pitching staff. I kind of looked at that deal as like a win-win at the time, and this it made sense to me. And I still think I feel that way. Like I don't I don't know that I would undo that trade if I were the twins, no matter how great of a start Arise got off to. I mean, a trade don't have to be a zero-sum game, right? Both everyone can be winners. And I think this is like I don't think either team would undo that trade right now. So I think that's cool. Because I do think that sometimes we get so caught up in who won the trade, who got the better end of it. There's this feeling you want to you want to get the better end of it always, and that you want to feel like someone sort of like fleeced someone else. But sometimes trades work out for both sides. And I think it's cool that it worked out this way because it's so rare to see just sort of like big leaguer for big leaguer challenge trades. Although I feel like, and this is totally anecdotal, we've seen slightly more of them the last couple of years of like big leaguers being traded for big leaguers. Um, might be something worth looking into. Um, and this is like one of the bigger ones in recent memory. At least in year one, both teams have gotten what they what they wanted out of it. So that's the, if the playoffs start today, I think they actually know the, the, the models would be just out, but they're basically in a virtual tie with the, uh, with the Cubs right now. If the playoffs started today, the twins would host a wild card series. And I think that's the way it's going to end. They're clearly not getting one of the top two seeds and a buy. It's hard to think they're going to blow it to Cleveland because they're up four and a half games possible. I guess it's probably going to be, uh, it'll certainly be the twins at home. They might play the Mariners but probably Toronto, which is a very professional way of going into our third topic. What the hell's going on with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. this year? He, <laughs> I am in the midst of writing like entirely too long piece about this, so we're going to try to summarize it a little quickly. He has a 116 OPS+. plus. That's not bad, right? It is an above-average season, but it's like a shell of the guy he was two years ago when he hit 48 home runs, and the only reason he didn't win MVP was because of Otani. And when you think about, okay, what are the reasons that a hitter would take a step back, right? The, the first three things that I think of setting aside injury would be uh, striking out more. No, he's not. Uh, hitting a ton more ground balls. Not really. Not making hard contact. Not at all, right? He, he has the second most hard hit balls in baseball, only to Ronald Acuna Jr. And if you look at June, he had the second best hard hit month of his entire career. And yet it, it's not working. And I can tell you this, Blue Jays fans had about 35 different theories on why it is. It's bad luck. It's not bad luck. Uh, it's pr- the lack of protection behind him. It is absolutely not the lack of protection. He's had like Brandon Belt and George Springer hitting behind him this year. It's not that. Here, th- there's three things I want to highlight briefly. Number one, people like to point to the fact that in 2021, he played a bunch of those games in Dunedin and Buffalo and absolutely massacred the ball there. That's true. I don't doubt that helped, um, but the quality of contact in Dunedin was like off the charts. It wasn't the ballpark. He was just crushing it. The second thing is, if you look, this is this is the weirdest thing. I cannot explain this. So he's hitting the ball really, 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 really hard, and he's not getting the distance that you would think out of it, right? If you look at barrels, which is the best combination of exit velocity and launch angle, there are hundreds of players who have at least 10 barrels. He has the second shortest distance on those barrels, and he's down like 20-something feet over his career. I can't really explain that. But to me, 20 feet is the difference between home runs and outs or or singles and doubles. He's also got a bizarre home road split this year, uh, not doing well at all in Toronto, but other guys are. 
the point is there's lots of theories here. And if I could tell you what it was, I would be running the Toronto Blue Jays and we would all have lots more answers. It's it's so confusing and to some extent frustrating. What about, I mean, they, they changed the dimensions of their home park this year where the yep. walls came in and, but they also were r- raised in a few places. Like, has that, have you, what have you, like, I'm guessing that was part of the theories you heard from Blue Jays fans was the dimensions. And like, where does your, where did you land on, on, on that? It was supposed to add homers, not take them away. Right. So I don't know what's going on there because, um, you know, Kirk is hitting better at home. Springer is hitting better at home. Kiermaier is hitting better at home. And we're still in the, the portion of the season where home road splits are fluky enough, where as I showed you the other day, you know what batter has the largest home road split in baseball in terms of being worse at home than they are on the road? Aaron Judge, unexpectedly. So is this weird? I, I have the numbers here, right? At home, uh, five homers and a 682 OPS on the road, 13 homers and an 862 OPS. That's not nothing. That's a big gap. I'm not sure I can explain it by change in dimensions or simple weirdness. If you look before the season, uh, he had an identical slugging percentage home and road. If, if you just look at Toronto home, not the Needham home, Buffalo home. The whole thing's bizarre. Indeed it is, but they're still... Maybe in the postseason, but the Mariners are coming strong. Vlad, it's it's like I feel like he's got a he now still has a chance to sort of like change the narrative of his season. Like if he can get hot and they make the playoffs, people kind of forget this like cruddy first few months. But it's weird because Blue Jays fans are kind of losing their minds about this offense, but they're still in playoff positioning. It just like it it hasn't quite clicked, and he's the big reason. He's the big reason why it's it's starting to. I think we talked about their runners and scoring position issues recently, right? And um, so Ben Clemens at Fangraphs wrote a really nice thing uh, this week about how it's like all randomness and you can't really explain it. And I hadn't noticed until I looked it up. So for the first four months of the season, the Blue Jays were awful, awful with runners in scoring position. So far in August, they look great. Batting average is up 80 points over last month. You know, the weighted on base is up 80 points over last month. It's starting to come together. And if that happens, like even if even if Vlad doesn't turn back into like God level Vlad, if you take their very good pitching, uh, they're high quality defense and you just take out this runners and scoring position garbage and you just get them back to like neutral. That's a scary team. I think this is this of the teams that won't win a division. This is the team that would scare me the most to play. I like, I think I said this before you take Toronto and you put them in Minnesota. I know which team I'm going to guess is going to win and it's not going to be the twins. <laughs> it's going to be the blue Jays. It would help too. If uh, you know, Vlad would figure this out. We're going to take a break and we will come back and finish off the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. Each week, we like to highlight a couple of guys you should know more about. And at the risk of doing a reliever every week, because I know Matt's going to do a reliever today, I made sure I didn't pick a reliever. I picked a position player has actually been around for kind of a minute. Unfortunately, he's sidelined at the moment with a concussion, but I don't think it's supposed to be serious. He should be back soon. JP Crawford is a guy I've been down on for like quite some time, and he's having a great year, right? So this is his fifth year with Seattle. First four, 691 OPS. Uh, his career, because he played at Philly for a little bit, 691 OPS. This year... 790, 124 OPS. He's actually been really good for a team that's surging. What happened? Well, we talk about driveline for pitching all the time. They help batters too. That's where he went. 
uh, went last offseason. And so uh, Daniel Kramer, who's our Mariners beat writer, wrote about this in a May 2023 newsletter. And I quote from Crawford, I feel way stronger in the box. And I think that's helping going every day to driveline this offseason, trying to use my body in the right way, you know, use the ground up, use my legs more. It, this is not the slap hitter approach that you might think. He's trying to get stronger. He's trying to hit the ball. And his heart hit rate jumped from 29% to 38%. That's really good. In July, he hit 340 and slugged 550. Now, what I found entertaining is uh, this is not new. And it's extremely not new. Ahead of 2021, the, there's a headline at our site that said, J.B. Crawford making adjustments to improve bat, which talked about how he'd added 10 pounds of muscle. Ahead of 2020, the Seattle Times wrote, J.P. Crawford spent his offseason putting on muscle. And I can go back to 2014 when he was a Phillies minor leaguer, a headline at NBC Philadelphia. J.P. Crawford looks to add strength this winter. <laughs> so he's been thinking about this for a minute. Maybe it's not just about the muscle. Maybe it's about the way he moves his body, whatever. But it's finally, finally been really good. And uh, I'll eat some crow on that because the last two off seasons, I was like, they should sign Simeon or Trey Turner or Correa or all those middle infielders. They didn't. Crawford's been really good. Don't forget, he was once part of a really big trade. He was the number 16 overall pick in 2013. He was supposed to replace Jimmy Rollins. And two years later, he was traded by the Phillies with Carlos Santana to the Mariners for Juan Nicasio, James Pezos, and John Segura. That's not interesting. The interesting thing is the exact same day they made the Robinson Cano and yes, Jared Kalanick trade. That is like a seminal day in the history of the Seattle Mariners. Uh, yes, Carl Crawford is his distant cousin, by the way. His dad, Larry, was a four-time Canadian Football League All-Star. Uh, J.P. Crawford is not someone I have been that interested in for most of his career, but that's changed this year, and that's that's a credit to him. Hey, and another good example of how, you know, player development, especially for even for big prospects, isn't linear. And he's been, like, a serviceable player for a few years now, and, like, this year he's been a good player. And as we mentioned just a couple months ago, the Mariners are cooking. He's been out. He should be back soon. And that is probably, like, the Blue Jays-Mariners race for the final spot is probably going to be the most interesting. I guess the NL the NL wild card will be like four teams like for one spot, which will be kind of interesting. But I guess the difference I see it is that I think that like the Mariners and Blue Jays feel like they could be dangerous if they get in. Whereas like I'm not really feeling the Cubs or the Marlins being all that dangerous if they get in. But you never know. Speaking of the Marlins, my guy this week is on the Marlins, and yes, it is the uh, the archetype of what we do for a guy you should talk more about. Yeah. Uh, a, a pop-up mid-career reliever who's uh, dominating the leaderboards. Because, you know, I do think, you know, a lot of attention has been paid to the Mar the Marlins' record in one-run games. They are 27-11 in one-run games. We all know from year to year, one-run game, one record can be very fluky. Usually, though, when it happens, there's, you know, a team is hitting extremely well with runners in scoring position, or they're getting great performance, and or, usually and, they're getting a great performance from their bullpen. Well, the Marlins are getting a very good performance from their bullpen, and their best reliever by far this season has been Tanner Scott. Tanner Scott is, if you look at the Fangraphs reliever leaderboard for wins above replacement this year, it's Felix Bautista, David Bednar, Aroldis Chapman, then Tanner Scott. If you look at win probably added amongst relievers this year, it's Alexis Diaz, Felix Bautista, Joel Piamps, Devin Williams, 
and then Tanner Scott. So he's been performing extremely well, and he's been doing it in extremely high leverage situations. That is a good combination. He has a 36% strikeout rate, which ranks seventh among qualified relievers. The only lefty relievers with a higher strikeout rate than him are Roldis Chapman and Josh Hader. Um, and that is company you would like to keep if you are a left-handed relief pitcher. Lefties are slugging 242 against him this year, and righties aren't even doing much better. They're slugging 286, and he is not slowing down. In August, he has faced 21 batters, and he has struck out 10 of them, so a near 50% strikeout rate this month. One thing I like about Tanner Scott, he's also the kind of pitcher that I've often liked in the StatCast era. He has an extremely high-spin four-seam fastball. He gets the rising fastball effect. He averages over 2,600 RPMs on his four-seam fastball, which is 99th percentile, about as good as you can get. And what's interesting, if you look closely, so he actually was drafted by the Orioles. Um, a, kind of a wild or, origin story. He's from uh, Ohio, from just outside Youngstown. He started his college career at Notre Dame, not the University of Notre Dame, Notre Dame College. Um, and then he transferred to Howard, not Howard University, uh, Howard College, a junior college in Texas, drafted by the Orioles, kicked around the Orioles system for a year, made the majors. And if you look closely and probably didn't notice it because it was the 2020 season, but between 19 and 20, and I haven't read any about the how of this. I just noticed an Orioles blog noted it, that from 19 to 20, he saw a big jump in his spin rate on his four-seam fastball. Went from like 2,400 RPM to 2,600 RPM. And in 2020 season, the pandemic season, he had a 171 ERA. So he was really good. So there was like a, a flash of Tanner Scott being awesome. He wasn't very good in 21. And then just around opening day in 2022, he was traded by the Orioles to uh, along with Cole Sulcer to the Marlins for Kevin Guerrero, Antonio Velez, and Yaki Rivera, who was the player to be named later in that trade. And Scott was very good at the beginning of last year, and then he faded in the second half. This year, he's been lights out, best reliever on the Marlins. And now with him, and they added David Robertson, they actually have a pretty good late-game combo. And the Marlins keep winning a lot of close games, kick sticking around. Ultimately, I think their luck will run out, and they will, not, they will fall short of the postseason. But the fact they're in the race is pretty cool, and Tanner Scott has been a huge reason why. It's been very good. And I remember when that Orioles trade happened, it didn't make a ton of sense to me at the time. And um, it kind of still doesn't because the Orioles, you know, Felix Bautista has been great. Shadir Cano is slowing down a little bit. Wouldn't it be great if they had Tanner Scott in that bullpen? <laughs> Wouldn't they be even better than they are? And I like, I was like a story of a guy who, you know, has kind of overcome several years of like up and downness to become pretty good. I also like this. Um, I was just looking at his Instagram page while you were talking. Lots of pictures of his dog, which I appreciate. I like a good dog baseball player. Uh, his dog appears to be named Otis, which I think is an outstanding name for a dog. So good choice. I look forward to seeing what pop-up reliever uh, you pick next week. Oh, that's right. That reminds me. I already know who I'm going to pick next week. It is a pop-up reliever, and it's a guy who got traded last summer in a trade that made no sense at the time, and it made even less sense now. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.